Pride is common to all of us. And in our study that we began last week, and I know some of you thought we began today, but every message stands alone in the life of Elisha. In the series, The Best of Things in the Worst of Times. And last week we looked at a very different kind of situation in how God reveals His best and His glorious work. But today we want to talk about a leper. General Naaman, second in command to the Assyrian king, or the Syrian king, Ben-Hadad II. And with all of his power, his prestige, his prominence, he was a leper, a living death. Some called it the stroke of God, indicating God's judgment on some kind of sin in Naaman's life. What a horrible thing. In Israel, he would be an outcast, and everywhere he would go, he would have to cry, unclean, unclean, but there was no quarantine in Syria. And as a result, he could lead his army, but I can imagine how difficult it was for his wife. They probably slept in separate bedrooms. She probably never touched him, didn't come close to him. She couldn't show him off at family reunions or take him on a Friday to the Damascus Mall. He was a leper. And yet, as a valiant warrior, as the Scripture describes him in another place, it was by his hand that the wicked Israel king Ahab was slain. But he was a leper. And all of us have this disease. And I want you to turn with me now to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. The old evangelist from the hills of Tennessee, Uncle Bud Robinson, said, Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. And yet Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Now, if we look at a simple definition, in the Old Testament, pride was uh, viewed in the literal sense as being raised up or rising up. Whereas humility was literally bowing down. And we'll look at humility today, the antidote to pride. But I want you to take your Bible and stand with me as we read God's inerrant word. 2 Kings chapter 5, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. <coughs> then the king of, Is of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter 
to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he's seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and, I, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, <coughs> I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not... Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. <laughs> when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so please take a present from your servant now. But he, that is Elisha, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. You may be seated. The Bible says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just not thinking of yourself. That's really the Adrian Rogers' paraphrase of the number of verses in Proverbs. And there are many that speak about humility. As a matter of fact, in James 4, 6, the Word of God says, He resists or opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Anybody here want to have grace and more grace? Don't we need God's grace and help and love in time of need? Well, what good is it if you gain the whole world like Naaman and lose your health and ultimately lose your soul? What good is it for us to hang on to our pride instead of embracing true humility and lose everything God has for us? Now, first of all, it's important to realize that God uses trustworthy servants 
to show us true health. You see that in verses 1 through 8. There was a little servant girl taken from one of the raids on Israel as a kidnapped young person and then placed as a, a slave to Naaman's wife. And when she heard more about Naaman's condition and continued to see that nothing was happening for health, she came to her mistress and said, there's a prophet in Israel. He can heal him. Now, she didn't have all her theology squared away. It's not the prophet that heals. It's God who heals. And she'd never even seen someone healed of leprosy. It was unheard of in that day. You know, Jesus created a riot when he said in Nazareth that there are Gentiles that God loves. And he, quote, in various parts of the gospel, mentioned the three times when God reached out to the Gentiles. He sent Jonah to Nineveh, Elisha uh, to Naaman, and Elijah to the widow of Zarephath, and she was a Gentile. The Jews were still mad about it 800 years later. They didn't think that God would or should love or save anybody but them. They were His chosen people. But this young servant girl had no vengeance in mind. She uh, had no sense of uh, hatred toward this man who had taken her as a servant. She had no prejudice toward him as a Gentile. Only concern and willingness to do whatever it took to help. But that also fulfilling responsibility is more important than gaining recognition. We don't know her name. And later God used other servants to really uh, turn the key into the lock of his soul to get him to do what the Lord had commanded. We don't know any of their names. <laughs> and yet the Lord chose to use them in an amazing way. Even those that had been kidnapped. And I, I just think of Elisha himself. Do you realize that in the New, in the, in the New Testament, not the Old, but the New Testament, Elijah is mentioned, I believe, 29 times, and Elisha only once. Do you think Elisha up in heaven uh, comes to Jesus and says, he has more followers and friends than I have. There are way more likes for him than me. Oh, no, of course not. But God uses the unnamed to do the impossible. Some of you are chosen of God. And I mean that with everything I'm saying, to be connectors. God will use you to get someone to someone else who has a need. You may do a referral for a, the right physician for someone. You may take someone who has all the tough answers to uh, Pastor Garippa because he'll have all the answers. <laughs> I know he'll be listening to this. So I'm putting him on the spot. But you see, God doesn't have to use an all-pro to save an all-star or an all-American. He can use a little girl. He doesn't have to use any of us. But he chooses to. 
even if we don't have our theology all squared away. President Harry Truman said, responsibility is the biggest word in the English language. That's a man bearing the weight of the world when he was president, including particularly the nuclear weapon. Responsibility is our calling to do right, no matter what. Now, you say, well, I don't want to be a do-gooder. When you do good and do right and righteousness, you're not a do-gooder. You're a servant of the Lord. Righteousness is not a feeling or even a conviction only. It is a conviction leading to an action. And thank God the Lord uses connectors. And this young lady not only asked for no recognition, as a part of that, no reward. She didn't say, I want a cut of the commission on this. I want a finder's fee. Oh, no. But some of us, if we'll be honest, would say, you know, I, I'm paid uh, twice what I'm worth and half of what I need. Not all of us are greedy. But she could have tried to leverage what she did for great great gain. As a matter of fact, she didn't even try to leverage this for her freedom. She only wanted to obey the Lord. And so I want to ask you, what would you do if no one thanked you, paid you, and no one saw it as a big splash? Would you do right then? Would you do right if others think you're doing wrong? Would you do right if you are the only one doing right? Would you do what is right and righteous in the sight of the Lord if you get nothing out of it, even feelings of goodwill? Would you do right if you're only the link in the chain of God's will and providence? I'm sort of amazed at this, this whole story because the little servant girl tells Naaman's wife, I'd love to know the conversation between her and her husband Naaman. Somehow, he then went to the king. He was persuaded. And then the king sent a bunch of, of loot with Naaman to the king of Israel. God didn't say, go to the king. He said, the prophet in Israel. And then the uh, all Naaman and the letters of endorsement and all this, this loot. Now, translated into our valuation today, it was 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold and 10 Brioni suits. Okay? That's a lot of stuff. God didn't say to buy off the king. And so when he went to the king of Israel, the king of Israel really freaked out. Am I God? He said, how in the world does he expect me to heal this man of leprosy? No one has ever done this before. And so the word goes out around that the king is really upset. He's torn his clothes in anguish and despair. Elisha hears, and he says, why did you do that? Send him to me, the man of God.
And all throughout this account of him in 2 Kings, again and again and again, he is called the man of God. And the only lesser sense is that he was called the troubler of Israel, just like his mentor Elijah at some point. And uh, the woman in, uh, the Shunammite woman said, Behold, this is a man of God who passes by us continually. She said he is a man of God, and then later he is called the man of God. He was the only one who could somehow know what God wanted to do in this situation. You know why? Because the Lord had told him. But here's the second big idea. God calls us to confront our critical situation. Naaman didn't know what he didn't know. We must stop ignoring the problem. If you have an issue of pride, you need to ask God to show you. Everybody else knows. Now you need to know. Elisha sent word that he needed to go down to the Jordan River and dip seven times in that muddy river, and he would be healed. And so the unsaved and the saved must fess up. The unsaved must face up to their fatal condition of pride. Because you see, it is pride that says, I have to earn my way to heaven, or I have to deserve heaven. It is that kind of pride that will send you straight to eternal lostness in hell. Because the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And we forget about lest anyone would boast or brag about it because we want to say, hey, I did this. I'm a self-made man. One of my business friends told me one time, he had founded a company. He had seen it grow to unbelievable expansion. He had made millions of dollars. He said, I'm a self-made man. And my answer to him was, well, I praise God for your talents. I praise God for his blessing. But it was his blessing, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. And self-made men and women tend to create self-made problems. And ultimately, we will try to do it ourselves and be lost forever. And then the saved, the believers must fess up. We need to face up to our critical condition of pride. Remember, God resists the proud. God doesn't want us to walk in independence of Him and self-sufficiency. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. You remember Simon Peter? <laughs> He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Simon Peter, uh, I don't understand how he could walk straight with his foot in his mouth so much. You know, all he needed for uh, somebody to listen was to be nearby, and he had something to say. And sometimes it was absolutely wrong and ridiculous. And when Jesus said that he was going to die 
and be buried and be raised. Peter protested. You remember this story. He said, I, I know, uh, Lord, these other guys are all losers. I'm not surprised that they'll run away. But I, I'm going to hang in there with you. And Jesus then predicted his disloyalty, his betrayal before the rooster crowed three times that morning. Because you see, our pride always gets us in trouble. And our entire life, we are learning, we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. The Scripture says Uzziah the king was marvelously helped until he became what? Strong. Second Chronicles 26, 15. When he burned incense in the place of the priest, he became strong and in his pride, I can do this. I should do this. Nobody can stop me to do this. I remember when God called me from my first pastorate in Phoenix when I was a college student to go to seminary in Texas for uh, master's and later doctoral study. And uh, I, I had a good bit of cockiness. I had just seen God's blessing and His beautiful work in my church, in my life. I, uh, I Just so many things. And I kind of, I guess, deep down thought I was God's gift to the Lone Star State. <laughs> and uh, so I get there, and I'm a single young guy in school, but nobody wanted a single 22-year-old to be their pastor, at least for a while there in Texas. So I'm hanging out, just praying for God to somehow uh, use me and do what He really should do, and, you know. And I get a knock on my dorm room one day, and it's a local pastors come to see me. And we sit down, and uh, if he could find a place amidst the clutter of being in a single guy's room. And he said, I, I'm going to have a youth retreat, and I'm looking for a speaker. And what do you do? I said, well, I, I, I preach. Yeah, but... I mean, really, what do you do? Do you do anything special? Well, I, I can sing a little. No, he said, at our last retreat, we had a guy who had a yo-yo act. Do you, do you have anything like that that you do? And I was so offended. I said, I don't have any shtick. I don't stand on my head, I don't do magic, and I certainly don't do yo-yo tricks. I just preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, you know, of course, he went away sad. I'd never heard another word from him. And I was so insulted in my pride. He, he was secularistic and humanistic in his approach, but my pride was bruised. And I began to think, well, maybe, maybe I, I need something unique. Maybe a better testimony or something. Maybe I'm, not, I'm not enough. God's not enough, if you begin to think like that. But you see, there are better preachers, but there's no better message. There are greater spiritual gifts, but there is no greater giver. There are greater servants, but no better master. And I realized, Lord, 
I am yours. Do with me whatever you choose. You see, I have a great concern, and I've, I've shared this, uh, unfortunately, sometimes on deaf ears, about how we have so projected success, and it, if you line up correctly in a personality inventory, or how you uh, test out on a spiritual gifts inventory, as if achievement and talent are the best way to do God's work. Self-esteem can lead to self-worship. Independence, self-reliance, and lose the power of God. I'm afraid that so much of what we see today has missed the, the mark. The very idea of humility is that idea of bowing low, of getting down and saying, God, I cannot get any lower than this. I am yours. But pride is that idea of puffing up in the King James Version or rising up. It literally in the Bible is the word inflated. I've seen some inflated egos, haven't you? It's often translated in the New Testament six times to be exact as arrogance. 1 Corinthians 4.6, and 13.4. My goodness, the Corinthians had a pride problem, didn't they? And some of us think we're something on a stick. <laughs> and so, here's another thing we have to do, is stop misdiagnosing our disease. Let me say two things. Pride is comparison of self with others. You notice how General Naaman had this air about him. He saw him as a high-class nobleman and a mighty warrior and general. And he, he, his favorite way of expressing this is saying that the rivers of Damascus, Abana and Farpar, are better. There's that word, better. In verse 12, than the muddy Jordan or any other river in Israel. He had not only national, but racial pride and personal pride. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian thinker, noted, No one is proud because he is rich, clever, or good-looking, but because he is more clever and better-looking than someone else. Because we're always comparing ourselves with others. And this is why in the church of the Lord Jesus, all throughout the Western world, we have a problem in worship. We fail to see the difference between conviction and opinion, and we fail to get the balance between deference and preference. In deference, I say, you know, that may not be my, si uh, my style of music or my favorite song, but if it's glorifying the Lord and blesses you, I'll be a part of that. That's deference because you recognize preference. Preference is okay. Even in our generations, we have what I would call a holier-than-thou attitude among a lot of us older adults and a cooler 
than thou attitude among younger adults. We compare ourselves with others. But what is so deadly is pride is seen in not only comparison with God, but I would also say competition with God. Competition with God. In Isaiah 14, God condemns Lucifer, son of the morning, the highest angel in the hierarchy, who then said four different times, I will do this and this. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And Lucifer led a, an insurrection. There's that word. It was a rebellion against Almighty God Himself, and particularly the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on the throne. And in Revelation 22 is described as the bright and morning star. Lucifer was just son of the morning, not the son of God. Not the creator of mornings. Not the Lord on the throne of the universe. But he, he thought of sin all on his own. And that pride, I will, I will, I will, in Isaiah chapter 14. To raise up, I will ascend. I will do what I want to do. I deserve to be God. And God said, you have fallen from heaven. <laughs> the valet to the German Kaiser of World War I said something humorously that probably wasn't in the ears of the Kaiser himself. He said, my master is vain. He has to be the center of everything. If he goes to a funeral, he wants to be the corpse. If he goes to a wedding, he wants to be the bride. And if he goes to a christening, he wants to be the baby. He has to be the center of everything. Well, who is on the throne? You or the Lord? The Bible says, the Lord has hidden these things from me. That's what Elisha said. And has not told me certain things. In 2 Kings 4.27. He was honest and humble enough to say, Hey, I don't know the answer to this until God tells me. He didn't adopt some sort of super prophet air. Only God did certain things. And Elisha knew better than to try to sit on Jesus' throne and say, now there's two of us. He was the man of God. And here's another thing we need to do. Stop making excuses. Now I want you to look at verses 10 to 12 in 2 Kings 5. And look at what happened with Naaman and how it's so typical of many of us. He wanted something macho instead of uh, being baptized in this muddy river. Look at verse 10. When he was told to go wash in the Jordan, and then he was furious <laughs> and went away. As was said a few years ago, real men don't eat quiche, buy flight insurance, or call for a fair catch. 
Hey, I'm a real man. I'm a warrior. I don't do stuff like this. I don't get dipped by someone else. I realized uh, baptizing in the Gulf one time, part of human pride, something I'd never seen before. And we baptized hundreds and hundreds of people in the Gulf when I was pastor at First Baptist. I had a guy who will go unnamed who did not want to be baptized in the traditional manner where I take control basically in a certain pastoral manner here with leverage and balance and lower him down in the water, but rather he wanted to go face down himself, which I found extremely frustrating and troubling. This is what he wanted to do. He, wa- he didn't want anybody else to baptize him. He did it himself. That's not the way you do it. But that's how subtle pride is. He wanted to be a real man, something macho. And then in verse 11, he wanted something appropriate. He was miffed that Elisha would not come out to him personally, in person, but rather sent the servant out to him. He was insulted. I deserve better than this. In verse 11, he wanted something dramatic. The prophet should wave his hand. Abracadabra. Poof. Healing. Wave his hand like he did with the cloak. And he waved the cloak over the Jordan River and it parted. He had heard about that. He wanted a miracle like that. A big show. Media exposure. Facebook. I mean, he wanted everything. Uh, Press releases. How great this was. He wanted something easy in verse 11. Just say a quick prayer. Let's be done with this. Wave his hand. You know, come out. Prayer. A little prayer. A little little talk to God. Something simple, basic, easy, quick. That's not God's way. He had just... He had just gone a hundred miles from Damascus to Samaria, and now Elisha is wanting him to go 30 miles east in addition to the Jordan River. Boy, that's too much work. That's too much effort to be healed for him. He wanted something finally that was respectable. In verses 11 and 12, he wanted Elisha to do all this and stand in a power move. Notice that? He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Respectable. You know, the Jordan of the gospel is too muddy and sometimes too simple for the intellectual. The cross is too offensive to them. How in the world would God want to do something like this in a bloody religion? And yet the cross is the answer. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, what happens? He pours contempt on all my pride. 
And then third, God has a practical prescription for our worst disease. You see this in effect in verses 13 uh, and following. Finally, Naaman, in desperation, went down to the river. And I'm using my sanctified imagination here. He gets in the shallows, he wades down and says, now what? And I could just hear the servant saying, the prophet said to dip in the river. All right, he dips once. Okay, I'm still a leper. No, they said seven times. So he dips again. He said, ah, that guy's a phony. That Elisha, what does he know about this? He's just one of those charlatan evangelists. No, they said, the servants continue to exhort him and say, finally, maybe he goes six times. He said, I've done six. They said, no, seven, one more time. And then they used the most effective reasoning. Look at this. My father, verse 13, had the prophet told you to do some great thing? Would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Oh, great things. Significant, powerful, showy, hard even. Oh, what a challenge. I want a mountain to climb. No, just a simple act of obedience. And he went down the water a seventh time and emerged with skin like that of a baby. No more rotting limbs and, and fingers falling off and huge tumors. He looked like, boy, he was looking good. Healed by the grace and mercy of God. Now, let me give you a, a quick wrap-up of the great physician's prescription for pride. This is not take two scriptures and call me in the morning kind of advice. First, learn from any source which God uses or chooses. He used in verses 4 and 13, servants, unnamed, but available. The Lord uses people. Sometimes He uses your wife, gentlemen, to sand off the rough edges of your pride. Sometimes someone who is godly has a rebuke for you, and you need to listen. And sometimes God uses not people, but circumstances. Paul said he had seen the, uh, the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, and he said, the Lord has given me a thorn in the flesh to keep me from exalting myself. Sometimes God uses that, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. What is God using in your life? The Lord has used many things in my life. I remember again when I was a younger pastor, and boy, the, the chastening, the rebuking, the, uh, the breaking goes on and on. If you're going to grow in grace. And we were in our first, in our little church, Mangum, Oklahoma. And I went to my first evangelism conference up in Oklahoma City. And uh, we were fresh out of seminary, newlyweds. And they gave an altar call, and I felt convicted to go forward and pray like a lot of the other pastors of churches. 
And then I stopped. I was way up in the balcony. And I realized I had holes in the soles of my shoes. It had been a while since I'd had a new pair of shoes. And I protested with God. I said, Lord, if I kneel down there, they will see the holes in my shoes. And I argued in my pride. And it was like the Holy Spirit said to me, do you want to be holy? <laughs> then you need to humble yourself. And God used it. And I went down and the Lord truly blessed. We need to learn from any source that God uses to choose. And then cooperate as God operates. It's a tough disease. But we need to respond with obedience. The word of the Lord came to this man. Verse 14. He was to do according to the word of Elisha that he had gotten from God. And when we respond with obedience, I guarantee you that God uses commands to do certain things to break our pride. The command to give financially breaks our pride to some degree of possessiveness and ownership. The command to witness attacks our pride and addiction to approval of men-pleasing. Our call to serve deals with our pride of our own time and priorities and self-centeredness. Our call to pray, and so many commands to pray in the Bible, breaks our independence out of pride. And then we respond with baptism. Obviously, I believe that we ought to be baptized in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because that is Jesus' command. And it is a picture of us humbling ourselves and saying, yes, I believe this, and I want to die to self because the Lord has raised me to walk in newness of life. If you've not been scripturally baptized after salvation, get it in order. I had to do that as a young man. We respond with repentance. The great need of our nation, obviously, 2 Corinthians 7.14. God said, if my people who are called by my name shall what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turning from their wicked ways, that I will hear their prayer and heal their land. We've got to humble ourselves before we repent and humble ourselves before we pray. And then respond with humility, obviously, to bend the knee, to get right with God. And to realize the subtleness of pride. Respond with worship finally. Praise is the antidote to pride. And you see General Naaman, once he's been healed, he says this in verse 15. Now I know that there is a God in Israel. I mean, his theology wasn't perfect. God is the God of everywhere. But he said, now I know. Do you now know that God is God? Do you now know that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the death of a cross? As Philippians says, to die for your sins that you would be saved. Now you should know. One last story. A few years back, 
I went to a special dinner in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it was privileged to sit next to uh, Bill Bright, the great man of faith who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew. Touched thousands, millions of people worldwide with the gospel. And he was carrying his oxygen tank with the cannula in his nose. He was in the last stages of pulmonary fibrosis. He would die uh, less than a year later. But I had the opportunity to sit with him and was just awed by this famous and great man of God. And I said, do you have one piece of advice for me? Here's what he said. Humble yourself before God and devote yourself more to prayer. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As Mark comes, we want to humble ourselves before this great, mighty, and loving God. And in prayer, would you right now ask God to show you pockets of pride in your life? It may be a veritable factory turning out pride and self-sufficiency constantly. Ask God to show you. How many of you could say right now with the uplifted hand, Hayes, God has been speaking to me today about pride in one area or another. Could I see a hand? Anybody? All right. Yes. I'm raising mine too. Anybody else? It's an ongoing battle. But ask the Lord to show you what it is. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We ask you not only convict us, but give us power to humble ourselves instead of being proud. To seek you first, your kingdom and your righteousness. To receive your grace for every challenge, every situation, and to recognize that we are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything coming from ourselves. Lord Jesus, you are all and all in all. Now, Lord, if there's any right now who do not know you, I ask that you draw them to yourself and bring them to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.